Um, as I say to you on occasion, I love being here with you. Um, it's, it's our great honor and joy and privilege to be with you here in this redeemed garage uh, every Sunday. Um, I always envision King Jesus smiling as his humble few gather in this humble place to make much of him and to worship him. So I just wanted to share with you. Thanks, praise team. That was beautiful. Uh, C.S. Lewis thinks that uh, most of us are far too easily pleased. Are you guys familiar with this quote? Uh, it's a pretty famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, mankind doesn't expect enough. Mankind doesn't want enough. Mankind doesn't desire enough. We don't think big enough. We don't believe big enough. We don't dream big enough. In other words, we settle. This is Lewis's point. So how about you? I was going to ask you at the outset, have you settled? Have you settled? Are you pursuing anything less than God preeminently? If you're preeminently pursuing anything more than you pursue God, then you're guilty of what C.S. Lewis is talking about. You have settled. This is how he says it in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, etc., 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 When infinite joy is offered to us, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. (laughs) What an indictment, right? So I'm going to ask you again. Are you guilty? Do you love something more than you love Christ? Are you pursuing something more than you pursue Christ? Apart from all the other things I could say about that, I'll just echo Lewis. You are half-hearted and you are far too easily pleased. We know the truth, don't we? Nothing can fill up the heart of man but His Creator. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may be familiar with Lewis's conversion. He struggled, as some of us do. But he struggled in particular with the Psalms because he kept bumping into the psalmist demanding that we praise God. You guys know the story? And Lewis didn't see the point in all of this. He said, God is like an old woman wanting her next compliment. He just didn't get it. He just didn't understand it. But then he had a life-changing insight. He came to see that in the Psalms, God is not looking for another compliment. It's not about God showing up some deficiency in His self-esteem. It's about you. And it's about me not settling for anything less than God Himself. That's in part, what is being communicated in Scripture when God calls us to praise Him. 
It's true, isn't it? The groom can't praise his bride enough, right? The mother can't praise her newborn enough. The mountain climber can't praise the view enough. The connoisseur can't praise the cuisine enough. And this is Lewis's point. Praise is always the climax and consummation of deep enjoyment. So when God calls us to praise Him, He's simply saying, have you enjoyed Me as you ought? Because if you have, you will praise Me. God is saying, don't settle anymore. When God says praise Me, when God commands us to praise Him, He's saying to His people, don't you dare settle for anything in the world. You come after Me. Nothing in the world is going to satisfy your soul. Like I can. Lewis says it like this, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. He says it just happens. If you've truly enjoyed something, you will praise it. He goes on, praise doesn't merely express the enjoyment, it completes it. This is why God is calling us to praise Him. It completes our enjoyment in Him. Beloved, when God calls mankind to praise Him, it's not about God's need to be praised, it's about our need to praise God. I hope you never forget that. <laughs> I remember that about you. <laughs> In one sense, God calls uh, to us to praise Him. And it's His invitation. Enjoy me. Enjoy me now, today. Enjoy me today. And enjoy me forever. For I will fill your soul and your mind forever with myself. With the glory of myself. Beloved, when you see God command you to praise Him in the Scripture, I want you to think like this. It's my invitation to enjoy God. This is not some mindless, dutiful, obligatory thing that religious people do. Not, not, not when we're talking about the living God. I know religious people do this. But when we're talking about really seeing Jesus Christ, really knowing Jesus Christ, really loving Jesus Christ, it is anything but dutiful. Amen? We cannot not praise Him. Amen? <laughs> we must! Who is a God like our God? We must praise Him. We must praise Him. Beloved, as Paul alludes to in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, he is the blessed God. Of course, we can translate that into He is the happy God. <laughs> and He's calling all creation to come and enjoy Him. Come and enjoy Me, the happy God. The triune God is filled up with the triune God. The triune God delights in the triune God. We're supposed to know that. We're supposed to be practicing that. And that's supposed to fuel our Christianity. We too delight in 
the triune God, someone may object and say, well, we don't admire human beings who are radically self-centered. You're telling me, Jim, that God is radically God-centered. But I don't admire human beings who are like that. They seem petty and self-absorbed and unloving and unconcerned. But of course we know God is not like any of those things. God is God and He's worthy just for that reason to be praised. The one and only being in the, all the cosmos worthy of ultimate praise. But God's call for us to praise Him, it, inc- it involves us. This is not His lack of self-esteem. This is His desire to fill you up. <laughs> Your enjoyment of Him. He calls you to praise Him. He's calling you to enjoy Him. He knows that's what you were created to enjoy. Yes, there are subordinate pleasures in the world. Praise God. We talked about them Thursday night at Young Adult Bible Study. I always start talking about my taste buds. And when I eat a good watermelon, it's a theological event. Because I can't stop praising God. But that's a, you know, that's a peripheral. That's a subordinate thing. God. God feels my God fills our soul, right? So when He calls His people to praise, and this is not a selfish, petty, unloving thing. In fact, it's the most loving thing God can give us. What is the most loving thing God can give to His people? Himself, and He is. He just, he's, that's what He's doing. He's just giving Himself to us. That's what He's doing. We rebelled. We've hated Him. We've cursed Him. We've blasphemed Him. We've ignored Him. And He's come for us. He's pursued us. He's pursued us. It's an awesome thing. You guys know, sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for sugar-coated misery. And God has come to rescue His people from that. Amen? Not that we would try to find pleasure in the things of the world, but that we would always find pleasure in Him. When He calls us to praise Him, beloved, I want you to hear this. It's an invitation. Come and enjoy Me. Come and enjoy Me. You guys know, and I alluded to, alluded to it earlier, you guys know Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in, in our hearts. <laughs> and no amount of money, and no amount of possessions, and no amount of pleasure, and no amount of ego, and no amount of co- accomplishment is ever going to fill you up. Is ever going to fill up that heart. The only way you can fill up a heart that has eternity set in it is guess what? God. Now you can keep trying. Some of you are trying, maybe. Some of you haven't learned yet. You think there's something out there that's going to really make it happen for you, right? Well, I can tell you I'm an old guy. I'll be 59 next month. There's nothing out there. I've tried it. You don't have to take my word for it. You probably won't. I've tried it. It's sugar-coated misery. God isn't. 
God just never stops giving. Once you begin that pursuit of God, there's always more of God. There's always more of God. There's never not more of God. It's a romance, beloved. It's an awesome thing. Beloved, we need to praise God. I hope you know you need to praise God. Because to truly praise God means we've come to truly know God. And to truly know God is to truly enjoy God, which means there will be praise on our lips. And the praise will spill out in our life, at the university, at work, in the marriage, in the relationships, in the neighborhood, obviously in the church. It just spills out. This praise spills out. It's not just verbal praise. It's incarnate praise, right? It's lived out praise. The old catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper makes a very small but beautiful change. See if you can hear it. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. (laughs) This is huge. (laughs) It's not and, it's by. We glorify God by enjoying Him. When you enjoy God, you glorify Him. When your spouse sees you, Enjoying God, when your children see you, enjoying God, when your friends see you, enjoying God, when your colleagues see you, enjoying God, you're glorifying God. (laughs) It's some of our best evangelism. It may be our best evangelism. Our best evangelism is enjoying God when the doctor says you have cancer. That's our best evangelism. That day when you can enjoy God, when... It's all come apart. Your dreams have been shattered. But my God's still God. Amen? My God's still God. I will praise Him in the cancer. I will praise Him in the financial disaster. I will praise Him in the death of my child. We take a page or a lesson from our good brother Job. At great cost to Himself through the finished work of Jesus, God made this possible. That rebels could enjoy Him. He did it. As I often say, we didn't go looking for Him. He came looking for us. He made this possible that, that rebel, a rebel like me could come to know Him and truly glorify Him in my enjoyment of Him. And praise is merely the consummation of all of that. So Lewis was wrong initially, right? We need to praise God. This is not some tiresome exercise. This is something my soul needs. And God knows my soul needs it. So in our text tonight, and in the 200 or so other times God calls His people to praise Him in the Psalms, I want you to always remember that a significant part of what God is saying, settle no more. Come and have me. That's what God is saying. At least in part. So I want to challenge you to learn to think like that. Again, I want to say it. Of course, God is worthy to be be, be praised simply because He's God. Of course, that is true. but, But God is doing an additional thing when He calls us to praise. It's a call to enjoyment. He's calling His people to, into never-ending and ever-increasing joy.
God is saying, stop playing with your sin and feast on me. That's what he's saying when he says, praise me. Praise me, all the earth. Praise me, all the peoples. Praise me, all the hosts. Praise me. God doesn't need a compliment. You need to praise God. You need to be in relationship with God. You need to know God like that. That's what in large measure is being said. So I told you as we preached on Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago when I, when I read that, that, that verse to you that, that um, David writes, God guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And I told you in that sermon that I almost got lost in that when I was trying to work through Psalm 23. Um, but I've been spending the last two weeks just meditating on this and studying the Scripture uh, about God's name. Did you notice that was what the songs were about? It's about God's name. His great name, right? So, that's really what this sermon is about. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. The NAS translates verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations laud Him, all peoples. Laud can be translated extol, glorify, or praise. It all means the same thing. At the end of verse 2, we see the, this, this exhortation of praise for the third time. Again, with a, with an, I think the first one has a... No, just, just, just the last one has the exclamation point. Almost... All the English translations that I looked at punctuate one or both of these verses with exclamation points. Again, this is not some obligatory religious thing God wants you to do. God wants you to do it with all your heart, right? Praise Him with all your heart because if you have seen Him, if you really know Him, you will. This is not some religious thing I do. I have. He's an awesome God. And He saved me in the most amazing way. Amen? Who could ever believe that God would save a people like this? I tell you all the time, if God did not tell me in His Word that He had saved me like He saved me, I would never believe someone with such a wild tale that God would love me like this. Amen? But God has loved His people like this. God has. He has loved His people in this way. I picked Psalm 117. Blessing guessed it. He guessed one of the reasons. There's two reasons I picked one, Psalm 117. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. And it's the very middle chapter of the Bible. Don't you think that's interesting? This very, very short psalm that's right in the middle of all of the Bible. And God says, don't settle anymore. You come and enjoy me starting now and for the rest of your being, the rest of your existence throughout all eternity. Don't you think it's interesting? I think it's really interesting. Because, you know, 117, it perfectly links up all that's been said before in the Scripture and all that's been said after the Scripture. Right, and it's just so succinct. God says, praise the Lord. Praise me. I love it. 
Psalm, this is why I picked 117, right? <laughs> I think there's some not so subliminal points to be made in that regard. So, Psalm 117, I love how in verse 2 it underscores all that we've been saying. Do you notice his loving kindness is great toward us? He's come to give us himself. I would say, yes, his loving kindness has been unbelievable toward, toward enemies and rebels, which we are called in Scripture. And also in verse 2, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. I love this. The truth that God will satisfy us forever, it's an unending truth. It's a truth that never comes to an end. It's always going to be true. On the far side of eternity, after a billion eternities, it's still going to be true. God's still going to be filling up my heart and my mind and my soul with pure, utter joy and praise. As a finite being, I'll never get to the end of Him. I love that. <laughs> this is the truth of the Lord. He will always satisfy His people. This is an everlasting truth. We have been taken captive. As one, one of my favorite songs, I don't remember now the name of the song or who wrote it, but he says something like, I, he says, I can no longer keep my heart. It's God's. My heart has been taken captive. It's God's. It's all God's. I love Him. I love Him above all things. I love how Psalm 43, 4 talks about it. To God my exceeding joy, I shall praise You. Oh God, my God. If you don't know this psalm, Go mark it in your Bible. To God, my exceeding joy, I shall praise You, O God, my God. Amen? Yeah. At the end of verse 2, you see, again, it says, praise the Lord. I just, just for, this is just free stuff I'm giving to you. Um, the literal translation, I have one just this very, a very little translation, and, and they translated it, praise ye Yah. Do you know why he would translate it, praise ye Yah? He's translating it, praise ye Yah. Anytime you see Lord in all caps, what does that mean? When you see, the, when you see Lord translated in all caps, what is, what is that name? Yahweh. That's what we have here in Psalm 117. It's God's proper name, Yahweh. It's built upon the word for I am. Every time you sing hallelujah, you are singing praise Yahweh. That's why he translates it, praise ye Yah, praise Yahweh. I just wanted to give you that. It's free. As we contemplate what God is saying when He says He acts for the sake of His name, which we've mentioned already, it seemed wise to begin with His name. You guys know where his, when He makes His name known, right? He tells Moses, go get My people out of Egypt. Moses said, well, who shall I say sent Me? If they ask Me what your name is, what shall I say? 
God says, I am who I am, right? Now, every child, I can't imagine one who wouldn't, but any, every thinking child would ask their parents, where did God come from? How did God start? And every biblically literate parent would say, He just is. I know the child can't understand that, nor can we fully grasp it and understand it. We are creatures of time. We are finite creatures of time. But God says, I am that I am, I just am. I am the unbegun, I am the uncreated. No other being is like God. I just am. Deal with it, Moses. <laughs> and every other creature on the face of the earth, I just am. I just am, Moses. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am God and nobody else is God. As my seminary professor used to say, all other so-called gods are empty suits. <laughs> and what he means by that is they are pretenders and wannabes. There is no other God but Jesus Christ. Thursday evening in Young Adult Bible Study, we took a, a look at those great chapters, Isaiah 40 to 46. And I'm just going to give you a few excerpts from those chapters. I know I, I, I try to work this in about three times a year, but I love reading it and I pray that you never grow weary of hearing it. These are just a few excerpts from Isaiah, chapters 40 to 46. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am He. Even from eternity, I am He. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? I am God and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Before me there was no God formed. And there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? The nations are nothing before me. I sit above the vault of the earth. I am the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. I am God and there is no one like me. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's an infinitesimal part of what God is saying when He says I am. I love that. Don't you love it when, this, when God talks about Himself like this? Doesn't it delight your soul? It just delights my soul. That's my Father. That's my Father. So... What is God doing in saving a people out of Egypt? Of course, He's always doing a billion things all at once. But it's always true to say He's doing two primary things. He's glorifying Himself and thereby... It's, this, is, this is critical that you, under, that you learn to say it this way. God is always glorifying Himself and thereby giving joy to His people. Amen? These are two... These are the two primary reasons God does anything. We might could say why God does everything. But I would say this. Let me just say it this way. Those two things are really only one thing. <laughs> because as God is pursuing His glory, oh, guess what? He's automatically pursuing your joy. It's really just one thing. <laughs> God is radically God-centered, and as He pursues His glory... 
The net effect is He is pursuing. With all the passion, God pursues His glory. God is pursuing your joy, beloved. <clears throat> yeah, there's some theology. I've got, yeah, this is, there's a lot of theology tonight, I know. But shouldn't there be a lot of theology in the, in the church? What is theology? It's just the study of God. It's, it's how we think and, and, and talk about God. Of course there should be a lot of theology. You know, I don't preach sermonettes. Those of you who've been around long enough, you know, I don't preach sermonettes. You know, sermonettes make Christianettes. I'm not interested in a Christianette, man. I don't want to be one, and I trust you don't want to be one. I trust you want to be a disciple in the world. A fearless, bold, you know, world-turning upside-down disciple. Making Jesus famous. Making King Jesus famous until He... Return. So it's clearly illustrated in the Exodus. God crushes Egypt. Do you remember the joy of his people? <laughs> Exodus 15. First, Romans 9 7, 17 tells us that God did this. He crushes Egypt in order to demonstrate his power that his name would be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's one reason you're still on the planet. I tell you this almost every week, you're still on the planet. To make sure his name is proclaimed in your orbit. Right? But you remember that you remember the Jews in Exodus 15, they sang this song of joy to God. Just a few excerpts. I can't sing it, it's too long. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, it shatters the enemy. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. Do you hear it? Do you see? Do you feel the joy of His people? God has manifested Himself. God has shown forth His glory. And His people sing in praise. Amen? They sing in praise. Secondly, what else happened? What else happens when God makes His name when God manifests His name in the world, when God makes His name great, when God demonstrates His godness for the world to see. You remember what happened? You remember when, when Israel came into the Promised Land? You remember when they ran into a, a harlot named Rahab? And what did Rahab say? I've heard about your God! Right? I've heard about your God! He crushed Egypt! Your God is God! You know, some people say, well, I don't think it's right that God should make much of Himself. That just seems like, you know, petty and pathetic. Well, you haven't met Jesus Christ. <laughs> he is magnifying His name that His people might enjoy Him forever and that many would be converted. He makes His name great in the world for a reason, beloved. He makes His name great for a reason. And I'm gonna, I just want you to feel the weight of this case from Scripture. I'm not going to give you all the Scripture verses here. If you want all the Scripture verses, email me. Email me. I'll send you my notes. But I just want you to hear how God talks about Himself and His name throughout Scripture. You remember when Joshua prayed for the, after the Hebrews were defeated at, at Ai because of Achan's sin, Joshua prayed it like this, What will you do for your great name, God? You know, this is a way that we can legitimately pray. 
The ground of our prayers can be His great name. Amen? <laughs> I love that. Again, after Israel had sinned greatly, Samuel's hope of mercy from God was founded in God's name. He says it this way, The Lord will not cast away His people for His great name's sake. Amen? 2 Samuel 7.23, David promises God, uh, praises God because God had redeemed Israel to Himself. Why? To make a great name for Himself. And I'm just going to give you some rapid fire here. The psalmist tells us that the earth will sing praises to His great name. That all the nations shall glorify His name. That all the nations will fear the name of the Lord. That God saved His people after, uh, pardon me, at the Red Sea for the sake of His name. The psalmist, will the psalmist tell us that for His name's sake, He guides, He pardons, He leads, He delivers, He forgives, He deals kindly with His people. Isaiah says, says, God leads His people to make a glorious name for Himself. Isaiah says, God will make His name known to His adversaries. Through Isaiah, God says, the earth will know My fame and see My glory. Through Isaiah again, God says, for the sake of My name, I will delay My wrath. For My praise, I will restrain it. For My own sake, I will act. Through Jeremiah, God says He called Israel to be a people for His renown, His praise, and His glory. Are you, getting, are you hearing it? This is a pervasive theme in Scripture that is much forgotten in what is called the modern church. Jeremiah, in confessing Judah's sin, calls upon God to forgive and protect them for His namesake. Through Ezekiel, God says to Israel, I will, I will not deal with you according to your sins, but for my name's sake. Through Ezekiel, God says to Israel, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations. Daniel prayed, O Lord, for your own sake, forgive and take action toward those who were called by your name. At the Jerusalem Council, James talked about how God was taking from among the Gentiles a people for His name. And John says in 1 John chapter 2, I am writing to you because your sins are forgiven you for the sake of His name. You call yourself a Christian? That's a serious thing. Beloved, don't call yourself a Christian out in the world unless you're going to live in a way that honors His name. I'm not saying we're perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our heart's desire is to honor God. And when we fail to honor God, we certainly can go to those who know and say, listen, man, I just messed that up. God is great. I love Him. I, I, I want to praise Him in all that I do. I messed it up. And if we, ask for, if we need to ask for forgiveness, we ask for forgiveness. I'm not talking about perfection. God, the, the Bible doesn't teach perfection. We will not be like Him until we seem. We will always need to confess and repent of our sin. It's a serious thing to call yourself a Christian, beloved. It's a serious thing in the eyes of God. His great name is at stake in how you live what you call your Christianity. And of course, Jesus talked like this. Everything He did was in the name of the Father, right? 
He came in the Father's name. He did works in the Father's name. He manifested the Father's name. And He said He made the Father's name known among the disciples. So Old Testament were new. God is unapologetically clear. He acts for His glory and for the sake of His great name. Over the years, I've discovered that some who call themselves Christians either don't like this truth, as I mentioned to you earlier, or they are at least suspicious of it. It's usually those who have set under a man-centered kind of gospel. You know, it's the kind of preaching where you're pretty sure the universe and everything in it is about you. It's that kind of preaching. I think we've all heard that kind of preaching. But the Bible makes it clear it's not about you at all. (laughs) It's about someone infinitely more interesting than you. It's about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, unbelievably, an enemy like me, He's pulling me up into what He's doing. He's not only saving me, He's pulling me up into what He's doing. And I get the sheer joy and pleasure of being a part of taking the Gospel to the world. John Piper asked a great question in this regard. He says this, Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you? And what he's talking about there is the man-centered gospel. It's all about you. The cross is all about you. Wrong! The cross is about the glory of God. And through the glory of God, the joy of His people. We have to say it right. We have to say it biblically. It's about Ultimately, it's about God. So he says, do you feel more love because God makes much of you? Or because at the cost of His Son, He enables you to enjoy making much of Him forever? That's the God-centered Gospel. That's the one we preach. <laughs> That's the one that we preach here. Honestly, if you don't like or are suspicious of the God-centered nature of the biblical Gospel, it's very possible and most likely that you haven't met Jesus Christ at all. John Piper again, the Gospel's not about getting people to heaven, it's about getting people to God. Let me ask you, has the Gospel brought you into the very presence of God? Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Do you really, do you really love Him? I mean, that's really the bottom line, right? Jesus said, my people love me. <laughs> and they do what I say. Not perfectly. But they're my sheep, they follow me. Thursday evening, I asked the young adults why they thought pseudo-Christianity existed. Well, of course, the short answer is Satan's good at his job. This is why false Christianity exists. Satan hates the God-centered nature of the true biblical gospel. He loves a superficial, self-absorbed, it's-all-about-me kind of Christianity. You know, the kind of people who could be happy in heaven if Jesus weren't even there. Right? Those kind of people? You know, (laughs) that's a good question. Would I be happy just living forever if I had all my needs met and I had every pleasure I could think of, but Jesus was not there? No. i got to have Jesus, man. Right? <laughs> Satan wants people to look at some cartoon caricature of Jesus, some pathetic, impotent, frustrated God who's frantically and desperately seeking someone to love Him back. You know, some little bitty Jesus, some user-friendly Jesus... Satan loves to propagate that Jesus, but that's not the biblical Jesus. That's not King Jesus. 
Yeah, I'm going to work it in. Psalm 99, 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted above all the peoples. And here it is. Let them praise His great and awesome name. I don't want some little affable Jesus. I need to praise King Jesus who not only created me, but has redeemed me in the most remarkable way. Satan likes perpetuating that little cartoon Jesus because you're never going to live for that Jesus. You're never going to take a risk for that Jesus. You're never going to obey that Jesus when it's costly. You're never going to do anything hard for that Jesus. But if you know King Jesus, I am more than conquerors. I am more than a conqueror in every single circumstance that God brings me into. And of course, you know how Jesus talked about it, and I'm done. Jesus says, My people, they'll, they'll leave houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and farms for My name. And Jesus said, My people that will suffer persecution and prison for My name. Jesus says, My people will be hated and persecuted by the world for My name's sake. And Jesus said, My people will persevere and endure and not grow weary for My name's sake. You see how important Psalm 117 is? <laughs> Beloved, it's not, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not about you. It's all about Him and His great name. It's why God's called you to praise Him. God is saying to you and to me and everyone who has the ears to hear, don't settle. Enjoy me. Come and enjoy me. That's the ultimate message of Psalm 117. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table.